88.1 KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. It's 3 p.m. and up next is Cover to Cover Open Book. Open Book. I'm your host, Dina Serrano, with my Poet to Poet series. My guest today is a poet dearly beloved by KPFA audiences. You hear him at this time every Wednesday, Jack Foley. Jack has just published yet another book. This book is called Visions and Affiliations. It's a huge two-volume book and fascinating and fast reading. Visions and Affiliations is a California literary timeline, poets and poetry, 1940 to 2005, a chrono-encyclopedia of a scene that stretches over 65 years. People, ideas, and stories appear, disappear, and reappear as the second half of the century moves forward. Poetry is a major element in this kaleidoscopic California scene. It is argued about, dismissed, renewed, denounced in fury, asserted as divine, criticized as pornographic. Poetry is as western as the Sierra foothills. And the question raised here go to its very heart. Beginning with the publication of Kenneth Rexroth's first book, this all-encompassing history as collage plunges us forward into the 21st century. Quote, California authors keep generating massive anthologies in an attempt to tame the chaos of California, to pretend it isn't there. Yet there it is, staring them in the face like a great bear, alive, hungry, and more than a little dangerous. Unquote. Welcome, Jack Foley, to talk about visions and affiliations. Thank you so much, Nina. Um, it's a favorite book of mine. I was working on it for some, ooh, ten years. Long time. I can believe that. it's. Uh, it looks like it's in two volumes, and I can tell you that it looks like two Oakland phone books. It's... But it's that big, much prettier, beautiful, <laughs> beautiful covers. They are. They were done by the paintings were done by Mark Rowland and Stuart Bradford did the cover design. They did a wonderful, wonderful job. They're both marvelous artists, and I'm very, very pleased with it. It goes over a very long period, and so, and it's got plenty of quotations. So it's a very long book. Yes, it's you refer to it as a timeline. It's not an anthology. It's not a history. It's a totally new form. Absolutely. Actually, Neely uh, Tchaikovsky pointed that out in some remarks he made about the book. Uh, and a couple of people have said, I've never seen anything quite like this. I found that myself. The pages just went by so fast, I couldn't believe it. It plunged me. It, it was like life passing before my eyes. It was. It's amazing. That's I wanted... actually exactly what Kevin Starr remarked about the book. He said that what he found in it, uh, the, the, you know, the California historian, an extraordinarily distinguished man, he, he liked the book a lot, and he said he found the flow of life in it. 
And I think that's so. I actually talk about the fabric of time as being the center of the book. Well, for me, it it also made me reflect on my own life because as you go from poet to poet or poetry movement to poetry movement, inferred in that is the way that one experiences or the way I have experienced life, that one thing and then the other, one thing and then the other, whether it's in the world of poetry or in other parts of life. Absolutely. Um, we're used to that kind of experience too, I think. Whenever we listen to a CD or, um, you know, the way in which we now listen to music, because you get a series of fragmentary things coming at you one after the other, and they don't necessarily have anything too much to do with one another. They might, but they don't necessarily have something to do with one another. And that's something we're used to in terms of music and we feel comfortable with it but in terms of books we're still sort of stuck in the notion of having somebody lead us through it of there being an authorial present and the only way that you are the authorial presence is that you sometimes refer to yourself as a character in the book. That's right. I'm like Henry Adams. Jack Foley says. <laughs> but I don't, I don't assume that. I mean, what you get as you begin the book is really uh, a whole bunch of quotations. Just one person after another, after another. And they have relationships. They know each other. They're talking to each other sometimes. But... It's voices. And one of my favorite parts of the book is what I called decade markers. And at the beginning of each decade, there is a series of quotations. And the quotations are not identified there. You can find them if you dig a little bit at the end of the book. But they're all quotations from that decade. And I don't tell who says them or anything like that. I just give the quotations. And they're very diverse, always. And you begin to get a sense of some of the things that are said over that next ten years. Extraordinary things, often. I'll read you the 40s, actually. Please do. The 40s is, is one of my favorites. It's the opening decade. And... Um, for a lot of reasons, it was the year in 1940 was the year in which Kenneth Rexroth published his first book, In What Hour? And it makes sense to begin this book with Rexroth, who has been described as having invented the culture of the West Coast. That was said by Robert Hass, and it's right at the beginning. Um, in What Hour was Rexroth's book, and Hass says, In What Hour seems with its open line, its almost Chinese plainness of syntax, its eye to the wilderness, anarchist politics, its cosmopolitanism, experimentalism, interest in Buddhism as a way of life, and Christianity as a system of thought, calendar of the seasons, with its interest in pleasure, its urban and backcountry meditations, to have invented the culture of the West Coast. That's what he says about Rexroth. Now, these are just some things said and that are in the book in the 1940s. Roosevelt died and met Wilson, who said, I blundered into it, under Wilson. I propose to discuss a group whose only salvation is in the struggle of all humanity for freedom and individual integrity who have suffered in modern society persecution, excommunication, and whose intellectuals, whose most articulate members, have been willing to desert that primary struggle, to beg, to gain at the price, if need be, of any sort of prostitution, privilege for themselves 
however ephemeral, who have been willing, rather than to struggle towards self-recognition, to sell their product, to convert their deepest feelings into marketable oddities and sentimentalities. That's said about gays, a very early point in the 40s. Here's something else said about the use of nuclear power, again, in the 40s. The bulk of the world's fissionable materials would be forever assigned to destruction, directly and indirectly, and become a tool for political world power jockeying, and would be completely or almost fully lost in their greatest potentials as effective substitutes for fuel, power, heat, and medicinal cure. Again, the 40s, understanding exactly the nature of nuclear power, what it could be and what it surely would go, was going to be. Here's another. A demon may be almost wholly deprived of being in large areas in which theoretically he ought to exist, but at the same time may have achieved an extraordinary degree of actuality in the regions in which he does exist. And when this happens, his persuasive power, his possessive power, is enormous. Our only protection against him is the critical faculty of which I fear we have far too little. She was married, and she was not married. She always stammered when they asked about her status. I am touched by the marvelous, the savage fruit of lunacy. Oh, anxiety, abide with me, abide with me, anxiety. So, I guess you might say we're a beat generation. The dominant centers of publication were largely closed to us. I read the wild wallpaper of my heart. Those are all said in the 40s. You just heard Jack Foley reading from his new book, Visions and Affiliations, a kaleidoscopic view of the California scene of poets and poetry from 1940 to 2005. Do you have some other little tidbits for us? Well, there's lots of stuff in the book, and, and uh, of course, all of these um, quotations, and there are many such throughout the book. Every decade has them, and I do identify them at the end of the book, but... You, you set the poets in their um, linear time. Yes, uh, everything's linear, but at the same time kaleidoscopic, because you don't sum up somebody, you know, at any given point, so that they're moving through time. Dominant figures, especially in the early part of the book, and very important ones are people like William Everson and, and Robert uh, Duncan and Rex Roth and, so, and Mary Fabilli and various people like that. But there are also people in Southern California who are of considerable importance too. Um, Thomas McGrath, for example, is an extremely important person at this time. Tommy the Commie, he was called. And uh, he lost his job because of his communist connections. And there were people, the Coastlines group, who were writing in Southern California. But I thought perhaps um, I would read 
Having said all of that, and having said the book is a bunch of quotations, which indeed it is, um, I'd read from some of my description of the book to give a sense of how I felt about it. And this is from the, um, the introduction. And then I'll read something from the end. Kenneth Rexroth's tireless and sophisticated efforts at establishing art in the Bay Area were an immense factor in an extraordinary Western cultural awakening. He was aided by the presence of some of the finest minds to grace 20th century culture, poets, musicians, novelists, printers, filmmakers, painters, all of whom contributed mightily to the flowering of the West. This book, incomplete as it is, gives some of the minute particulars of California's cultural awakening, an awakening which placed California in some ways at the very center of 20th century American experience. In a Lou Harrison reader, Peter Garland writes of California's and the West's contribution to American culture during the 20th century. Garland suggests that California's unique contribution is a renewed sense of place. This sense of place differs from much of America's other regionalist perspectives in that it is internationalist in scope. In that way, regionalism becomes a liberating and progressive rather than limiting factor. Only in California, perhaps, with its already mixed Anglo, Asian, Hispanic, and Indian population and heritage, could this viewpoint have developed naturally and without intellectual self-consciousness or borrowing? The viewpoint Garland describes, simultaneously regionalist and internationalist, has been home to an extraordinary number of kinds of writing. Californian Ishmael Reed coined a term for the sizzling cultural soup that constitutes California as well as America as a whole. He called it multi-America. It is multi-America which is the subject of this book. It chronicles time, sunrises and sunsets, big events and little, and brawling, sprawling L.A. and at San Francisco's Golden Gate. Beat father figure Lawrence Ferlinghetti, whose San Francisco bookstore City Lights was declared an historical landmark in 2001, writes, Everything changes. And nothing changes. Centuries end, and all goes on, as if nothing ever ends. But I still hear singing. That's the introduction to the book. Well, it's beautiful. Thank you. Um, and then, all the way through the book, 1,294 pages later, we come to a note on this book, which is a, a little closing set of remarks about it and it has a quotation from the philosopher Michel Foucault from his book The Order of Things at the beginning of this little piece Foucault writes I mean the disorder in which a large number of possible orders glitter separately now that's a wonderful quotation I think and that's kind of a description of the way I understand this book to be I mean the disorder in which a large number of possible orders glitter separately. A version of this timeline appeared in my book, O Powerful Western Star, in 2000. That version has been corrected and considerably amplified for this book. 
Nevertheless, I'm sure that my prejudices and errors are still on display. When I felt passages from articles I have published on various individual writers or themes would help illustrate the intellectual life of this region, I have not hesitated to include them. Unfortunately, despite the size of the book, there are many important figures I do not discuss at length, often simply because of my ignorance of their work. I have tried to give space and commentary to as many people as I could to honor what Elena Kim calls the legitimacy of differing representations of reality. And I have deliberately not limited myself only to the famous. I realize that I have necessarily been unfair to many. May books other than mine give them their proper place in the California sun. Since I have been a part of this poetry scene for more than 20 years, I often appear as a third-person presence in the manner of Henry Adams in the education. I have worked hard to be inclusive and even objective. But visions and affiliations is necessarily an image of my own experience. If the book were to have any depth, it had to come from there. And so it is, in a sense, a running history of my involvement with California poetry. I ask the reader for, to forgive the many lists that dot the book, and even more to forgive the lists that should be in it and are not. I've tried to supply names and publications wherever I could. There is no way to represent a deep, exciting chaos except by being at least a little chaotic. Even a timeline can be a, but not the, tale of the tribe. The problem with doing a book like this is that you're always digging up new things which sometimes contradict what you thought you had. Nothing is secure. If you let yourself be too aware of the utter endlessness of the project, you're lost. You'll stop doing it. So you keep saying, okay, that's fine. It's finished now. But of course, there are many instances in which what seems to be finished turns out to be merely the beginning of something. You know the project is endless and constantly getting away from you. But you do what you can to forget that fact. And you comfort yourself with a momentary, possibly illusory, insights that arise as you go through. Slippery history. When songwriter-performer Marshall Bearer blandly asked a young woman in his audience, What's your sign, dear? She answered, Slippery when wet. Trying to write history is dealing with wet. That's why historians so often rely on the work of colleagues. The work of others offers some foundation. But colleagues, too, are often nothing but apple carts waiting to be upset. I think that all this activity reflects that self-questioning which lies at the heart of Heidegger's Dasein, a being which places its own being in question. It's not that there is no ground, but that any ground you find is tentative, temporary, temporal. For many years, God was the Urgrund, the ground of grounds. But once God goes, and God is gone, innumerable grounds appear, each with its bit of truth and untruth. Quote, Things are cast adrift, more or less like one another, without any of them being able to claim the privileged status of model 
for the rest. Hierarchy gives way. If there is any Urgrund in this book, it is the constantly changing, endlessly conflictive fabric of time. That's Jack Foley talking about visions and affiliations, his new book. Jack, where can people find the book? Well, it's uh, available through um, uh, Amazon. Amazon Amazon.com is possible. They've been advertising it there. So that's one of the places. And if you're looking for it in your local bookstore, you can have the bookstore order it from SPD, Small Press Distribution. They have copies and they will supply bookstores. We're going to be doing a book launching reading for it uh, on Bastille Day. Let the prisons of France be open. We're doing it on July 14th at Moe's at 7.30. And we're having a whole bunch of people, people who have been in one way associated with the book and who are in it. Uh, people, and among them will be people People like uh, Al Young and Michael McClure and uh, Catherine Hastings and Mary Marsha Casoli and Lucy Day and various people who've been encouraging me throughout this mad project over these 10 years. As I said, well, the book's done <laughs> and then discovered, no, no, it isn't. So we're all going to be there at Moe's at 7.30 on July 14th. In Berkeley. In Berkeley. Moe's in Berkeley, right. Now, Berkeley is where you were uh, honored by the city of Berkeley as their poet. Uh, yes, well, um, I, I was given a lifetime, it's an interesting moment, um, I was given a lifetime achievement award by the Berkeley Poetry uh, uh, Festival, which was a very nice thing to have done, and my great thanks to all the people involved, particularly, of course, to Louis Cunio. Uh, but... Uh, and it was Jack Foley Day in Berkeley. I, I was delighted um, because if you get that honor, if you are named as a you know lifetime, if you get a lifetime achievement award, they give you a day in Berkeley. So most people have only fifteen minutes. I had twenty four hours. I thought it was my day is done. It must have been wonderful. It was an interesting day. We had T-shirts too, and uh, we had. Uh, we had some Chaucer on the T-shirts. We had a lot of stuff. Befell that in that season on a die, uh, says Chaucer. We had that on the T-shirt. It happened then on that se- in that season, that spring. It happened in that spring on a day. Well, that's what we had on our T-shirts. So that's July 14th, Bastille Day, at Moe's Books in Berkeley at 7 p.m. 7.30. 7.30 p.m. Yeah, it's part of the Moe's series. And it's sponsored, of course, by Poetry Flash, so uh, you can get details, if you like, um, at the Poetry Flash website, www.poetryflash.com. Uh, it should be a wonderful time. There will very likely be a musical saw as well as <laughs> poetry. <laughs> we plan it big. <laughs> big. Big time. Big time. So what would you choose for your closing? Well, I have a poem that I put at the end of the book um, two things perhaps the very last statement which I did read um, about how the book is an attempt to transform your consciousness I really believe that that as you go through it the book moves you in certain directions but this is a poem that I wrote for the book Far West To the far west, a forest. All who approached it died. The people there 
knew nothing of the outside world. Far to the west, far to the west, beyond the sunset, in the farthest stretch of the west. The people there had blue-gray eyes, and they smiled at sorrow and wept when they were happy. When they married, they made offerings to the darkness, to the sweet dark. They wished for all that darkness brings. They wished for a good death. They wished to remain as they were until the death goddess, whose eyes were also blue, came to claim them and bring them to the great happy land in the east where there were others like themselves. For now, they had only the chittering birds and the animals, the trees and the rivers, the hills and the deep valleys to comfort them and make them feel at home. Beautiful. Thank you, Nina. A wonderful poem. Beautiful poem. Well, there's still time for one short excerpt from your book, Visions and Affiliations. Okay. Why don't we do the 50s? Um, I put, uh, so you could say, we're all a beat generation uh, in the 40s, which is when it was said. And people don't always know that. Of course, it was Jack Kerouac saying that. Uh, In the 1950s, we have... Well, we have beats and counterbeats. We have the Howl Trial. We have the San Francisco Poetry Center. And we have Tommy the Cubby, Thomas McGrath. All right. Here are a few things said in the 50s. Solitary Bartleby's staring out the dead wall window of our civilization. Many of my father's friends, Professor Tolman, Professor Lowenberg, others, have been fired as if their years of service meant nothing. I cannot bring myself to betray the devotion with which my father served a free university. You killed him. You killed him. In your goddamn Brooks Brothers suit, you son of a bee. From about 1930 on, a conspiracy of bad poetry has been as carefully organized as the Communist Party and today controls most channels of publication except the littlest of the little magazines. It is important to make a living, but it is even more important to make a life. If the language were new, if it were so beat up and worn out, everything we'd say would be a piece of a poem, wouldn't it? That's the kind of world we'd want. That's real communism. When we own the language, which would probably be the last thing to be owned by the people. It's easier to take over General Motors. we got to take over the dictionaries. Destroy the goddamn things. The guns have dropped beside a corpse. Spring turns up a leaf. They lacked the capacity to get enough energy into their material to crack the reader's ego. They wrote non-academic poems in an academic way. There you go, 
Aruni. Wow. That was the 50s. That was the 50s. That was the 50s. Well, thank you so much, Jack Foley, author of Visions and Affiliations. And we look forward to your book party on July 14th at 7.30 at Moe's Books in Berkeley. And thank you all for listening. And thanks to our board operator. This has been Nina Serrano wishing you a very pleasant afternoon. Gracias. Asia, to Latin America, to your bedroom, the true menace of climate war has begun. Temperatures rise, glaciers melt, droughts intensify, and extreme weather increasingly expresses itself in social breakdown, humanitarian crisis, expanding violence, and such governmental failures as militarism. Christian Parenti, prize-winning author, columnist at The Nation and The New York Times, provides a fully reliable, if startling, overview of what's already here and exactly what's looming. In his new book, Tropic of Chaos, at a KPFA benefit on Thursday, July 14th, at the Hillside Club, 2286 Cedar Street in Berkeley, Richard Walensky will host. There's wheelchair access, advanced tickets are $12 at our independent bookstores, 